Um, well, I appreciated where Ryan uh, kind of got us to last week, and uh, this week we're going to continue on from there, asking the question, what were some of those messianic expectations? Um, one section I've specifically added to this is something that, especially after my time a couple of years ago in Israel and really looking forward to going back um, in just a few months, we'll be headed back at the end of May of 2016. Um, one of the major questions that we'd love to ask is, so why don't the Jews today believe believe in Jesus. And it really helps us understand not just, um, say, an evangelistic opportunity that we might have when sharing the truth about Jesus Christ um, with somebody of the Jewish faith, but it really helps us understand maybe a little bit more about our own faith when we know why people have an obstacle with Jesus. And this is why it is so good for us to go back and to ask the question, so as followers of Jesus Christ, I mean, I'll just go off of the, the, the name that on the one hand I love using about us, I've, no, I've got no shame in the name Christian, I get concerned where it gets wrapped up in a lot of the, the cultural milieu. It, just, it becomes just a way of describing, as I usually describe it, people who were born in Ohio. Uh, and I, so therefore I have to be a Christian, and that's really not where it comes from. Um, and so I like to use, when I'm speaking, when I'm preaching, uh, when I'm witnessing to people, I like to refer to myself as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Christ, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, because there's seems like there's less confusion. I'll meet people and I'll say, are you a Christian? They'll say, yes. And I'll say, well, tell me about your relationship with Jesus and where he is leading you and what he's doing in your life. And I meet Christian people all the time that go, I don't even know what you're talking about. I just said I'm a Christian. I didn't know that actually had any implications on my daily living, which is something the Bible would not know about. But here's why it's good for us to go back and to take an honest look, that when we think about who we are, sometimes we get wrapped up in, well, what we are, we are, um, we're, we're children of God, and we are children of God. Um, where this begins to matter more is that as we begin to share what we believe, we're not just believers in a generic God. Um, this isn't where we have a big problem in the world today. There are lots of other religions that believe in God. And so we can have conversations. I could get asked to go and deliver a prayer somewhere. And they would say, we just want you to pray to God. They've got a view of God. I've got a view of God. It really doesn't matter. Does it really matter? So you just, you know, you say what you want to say. Just make sure you end with like a God phrase and don't get any more specific than that. I can always tell there's something going on uh, when it's uh, something on the... Uh, You'll see it on a, like a TV show or something. At the very end, it's just this generic prayer around the table. It's this generic prayer um, in the emergency room, and it's just God, just generically. And we don't pray like that. I mean, I've been taught to pray in the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is this is how I have actually been taught, and that is fundamentally different than this. In, in the world's mind, okay? So here, it's, it's, it's I wanna bring glory to him, but I wanna get a little more specific. So when I say God, I don't mean Allah, I don't mean karma, I don't mean what some even, uh, what they would consider themselves to be Christian scholars um, would like to refer to God as the transcendental reality or the ultimate reality. No, that's not what I believe in. I believe in Yahweh a very specific understanding of who God is, a personal God who created heaven and earth. So I believe in Yahweh. Now, I wanna take it one step further, is that I'm not just a follower of Yahweh as though Yahweh has only spoken in one way. But in the end, the, the, the revelation of Yahweh comes down to us through his son, and I'll use his Jewish name, Yeshua, or Jesus, and that becomes what we believe. And this is where the rub exists. This is where all of a sudden, I, I find out we're on different pages. I've, I've shared with you um, the lovely opportunity that my wife and I have had um, for over a year now, sharing our home and our lives with a young man named Taysir. Uh, Taysir is from Saudi Arabia. Um, he is a part of our, right now he's a part of our family. We, we care deeply for him. Um, and I, I love opportunities that we have to talk about God. 
and, and him and I, and he, what's interesting is, and I'm just talking about Taysir, so don't take what I say about Taysir and make it apply to all Muslims everywhere. But when I begin to talk about Taysir, what he seems to really enjoy is finding these commonalities between our religions. He, he loves to talk, oh, same, me too, me too, yeah, me too, yeah, me, yeah, me too, that's my religion too. And the more he says that, I don't know about you, and I'm not just trying to be a contrarian, although I have that in me, but I'm trying to realize something is fundamentally broken if he spends a year with, uh, with Andrea and I and he goes, yeah, me too. Because there's not a me too actually in our thinking. There's way more differences than similarities. And I'm not trying to be overly critical, but I mean, and I've told him this, so we're very, he's very much aware that I believe that we, we don't actually follow the same God. And where I have found the most interesting conversations to come up, and I, I'm very respectful, um, I'm, I'm very honest, is about him, Jesus, Yeshua. That's where all of a sudden, and I, and I will point out as kindly as I can, and, he, and by the way, we're very playful too, okay? So you need to understand, he gets me, okay? He really does. But I'll point out, do you understand that my my Jesus made your Mohammed. Like he made him. Like that's what I'm telling him. Like that's what I believe. I don't believe in this similar. They're both prophets. I'm like, you don't get it. Like the only reason why Mohammed has anything is because Jesus, out of his kindness, let him be and let him live and let him breathe. That's Jesus of Nazareth, you understand? And I'm just trying to describe, I get excited talking about it. And he looks at me and goes, I don't think that. I, I said, I know you don't think that. <laughs> Listen, I'm aware you don't think that, but you need to think that. That's why, that's what matters. We, we want you in our home because I want you to believe that. It's, it's, a, it's a difference. I don't want you to ever think that because I believe in God and you believe in God that we kind of believe in the same God even though it's a little bit different and no, no, no. We believe in two fundamentally different things because I believe salvation is found in no other name for there's no other name given to men by which we must be saved. And that name, according to the book of Acts, is who? Now, by the way, who designed all this? Yahweh, the Father. Jesus died for the glory of God the Father. That's, that's the biblical theology. That's what it's, all of this is trying to, trying to get us to understand. Now, so where does this point of contention come into, come into play? And here's where it is. It's the identity of who Jesus Christ is, okay? Now, I believe Jesus Christ is truly divine, but let me kind of then wrap up this bigger picture here. Yes, he is divine, but he is truly Messiah. Um, he is Messiah. Now, I, I, I say this almost every time I bring this up. The two other words for you to know um, in different languages other than Messiah, just so we're always recognizing how similar these are, is if you want to use more of a Latin or a Greek term, you would refer to Jesus as Christ. Jesus Christ. That is the Latin or the Greek, depending upon what it looks like. Um, Christ, and then the English... If we were to just translate it and not transliterate it, Christos in the Greek, we would be anointed one. That would be English. So you could literally take the word Jesus, Messiah. I mean, I don't know about you, I kind of like that phrase. Jesus, Messiah. Whenever you see the word Jesus Christ, you could legitimately just add the word Messiah instead of Christ and you're literally saying the same thing. Or you could say Jesus, the anointed one which means this is who Jesus is. And we'll see why this matters because when Jesus appears on the scene, and that will go to our notes, I want you to, to at least appreciate at some level that the nation of Israel at the turn of what we would consider to be from the BC to the AD, although they didn't know it was changing, they just thought it was a new year, but as we go back and look at the calendar, from that turn at the coming of Jesus Christ, there already existed in Palestine and in the Jewish community a strong expectation that something was going to happen, that God was going to be at work. And the two things that I want us to, to, to consider that is happening is that they were looking for 
a kingdom. Ryan kind of helped us understand how we, were, how we got here. There is this kingdom that is essentially uh, expected in the hearts and in the minds of the Jewish people. And then who is going to reign on that throne? And the answer is that will actually be, and I'll use the English so you can understand why this makes sense. Who sits on the throne? Those are, it's the one that we've anointed. It's the anointed one. Because who's anointed? Kings. So it's the anointed one. Okay, and the Aramaic word comes out Messiah. So they were expecting an anointed one or a Messiah to come to be a part of this new kingdom that they were looking for, that they were actually longing for. And the first thing that we actually see in terms of what is the roots of this kingdom that the Jewish people were expecting is coming from God's promise to his servant David. So we talked about this two weeks ago, but a great chapter for you to kind of keep in your mind in terms of where is this coming from. Um, we're talking about 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have the conversation. There's a prophet involved, Nathan the prophet, and then you have David and God, and they're having this conversation regarding um, uh, God's desire. David wants to build a house. I love this chapter. David wants to build a house for God. God says to him, what house? House could you conceivably, how could you build me a place? What could you possibly do to build me a place? But instead, let me build you a house. And he kind of plays off of that imagery. Um, you want to build me a literal house that you think I can stay in, and I appreciate it. It's cute, David. I mean, it's cute what you're offering me, but remember who I am. But let me build for you a house, a house that will last forever, an everlasting house. And so, as the nation of Israel goes through its history, David, around 1000 BC-ish, 1050 BC, as they're going through their history, they're expecting that this wonderful King David and God's covenantal promise that one will always reign on the throne, that that will always be in place, that that will always happen, and so they're excited about this. But what happens in Israel's history to break from that is in 586, 722 for the northern tribes, in 586, the kingdom of Israel, Judah particularly, is crushed. And the king is taken away. And now all of a sudden, you don't have a land, you don't have a temple, you don't have a king, you don't have any of that. Instead, all you have are um, exiles in a foreign land. And just realize, and we'll, you'll see in a moment why that matters, you have exiles in a foreign land. And, and for those of you that ha maybe have an interest in Israel and in Jews and, um, and, and in their faith in Judaism, which I have always had since I was a little boy, um, it's interesting how a lot of the similar ideas and concepts that I hear uh, from uh, good friends of mine that are Jewish the concepts that I have them uh, describe actually go all the way back thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Um, it's interesting that when you even listen to them talk, uh, they have a profound sense of one another, a profound sense of community. One of my favorite stories about that is um, uh, there was a, a pastor that was over in Israel years ago, and he was um, having a conversation with his tour guide, and his tour guide was saying, well, let me tell you about this one battle that we had, and the way he was describing it was like he was there. So they were over here, the bad guys were over here, and then we were over here, and we were hiding down in here, and then they came up, and then we surprised them, and then we won. And the way that he was describing it, this pastor thought that it must have been like recent. And so he asks, so was this like in 67, or was this in 48? And the gentleman said back to him, that was like the Maccabean War, which is before the time of Christ. But their, their mindset was that was us. Like that's me, I'm from that. And that's going to play into this idea quite a bit. They have a very strong and rich um, communal connection within the Jewish community, okay? So they're looking for in those time periods, so think of it at 586, um, and Ryan explained what happened to that. In 586, they're taken away into Babylon Alexander the Great comes in the 300s. His kingdom gets divided up between the four uh, generals. Um, you've got some major hap happenings that are going on. And, and during that time period, you have what is known as that 400 years of silence where no prophets are rising up and speaking. And there is within the Jewish community, which is now scattered. 
some in Palestine, um, some actually going down even up into, e into Egypt, others still across in what we would know right now as, as in Iraq, and they're wondering, now when is all of this going to come back together? And what they're holding on to is the promise that God made to David that there would be somebody that would come and be on the throne. So we're going to be looking at a, a number of different Bible verses tonight. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. I'll be reading from the ESV. So if you don't have yours and you don't want to use your phone, um, there's one definitely in the pew. Um, but here's one of the things that they were looking at, interestingly enough. A very important text, and I'm trying to stay as much as I can tonight within first century Judaism. So I'm not just going, hey, these are the Bible verses that we like. Because what, what you might find interesting is that some of the Bible verses that we go to weren't really the ones that they were going to back then. And so I'm trying to stay as close as I can within what is known as that um, Second Temple Judaism period or even before that in that first century. So looking at um, what some of these expectations were. And so I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and we'll look at verses one through five, and we'll kind of see um, what they were looking for, what they were expecting. And I don't know about you, <laughs> uh, I love these, uh, I've learned to love, let me be brutally honest, I've learned to love these very complicated chapters in the Bible. Uh, the book of Isaiah has got 66 chapters in it. Um, um, and how many of you have read the book of Isaiah, like all the way through? Okay, so most of you have read it. Any of you get lost in it? I do. I'm reading it and I'm like, I have no idea where I am. Now all of a sudden we're mad at Egypt. Where did that judgment come from? And so, and then in the middle of it, you'll break into a narrative and you'll deal with something from King Hezekiah and then we find out what's wrong with Tyre and Sidon. Okay, where are we, where is this going? So the book of Isaiah has in it some very rich prophetic statements that are being made um, and it is, it can be difficult to try to piece them together. And so when you read these prophecies, you can understand the complexity or the difficulty of then, and, and imagine even in history, saying, okay, so what is he talking about again? What is he referring to here? So let's just take a look at these verses. I wanna read verses one through five. Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through five. Uh, at the very end of chapter 10, it describes like the, 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 the big trees in Lebanon being brought down. Okay, uh, by God. And then that, that's, that matters because I was going to talk about this new tree that is coming up from Israel. Okay, verse one. There shall come forth a shoot, meaning like a little tiny branch, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, obviously, Jesse is who? King David's father. Okay, so a stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And there you have, um, by the way, the word Lord that's being used in all of these texts or these verses is Yahweh. You see the L-O-R-D all in capitals of Yahweh. Verse three, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with, with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and, the with, and, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And they would read this text and they would say, okay, so Jesse, that's David, this thing, oh, okay, so he's talking about this new kingdom. It's talking about this new one that's going to come up. And, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but do you remember when they were killing Jesus, what they did to him? Remember they hit him? And then what did they say? They had him, like, you can't see, right? And they would hit him, and then what would they would say? Prophesy who hit you. You want to know why? This verse. Because he will make judgments not with his eyes. So this is one of the, they actually believed that the Messiah, when he could come, could, they, they read that part very literally. And so one of the reasons why they, why they, why they did that was kind of their expectation from this. And he could have. 
And <laughs> yes, he could have. Yes, he could have. Um, yeah. There's lots he could have in that moment. Uh, but yeah, when you think about this, when you think about what's going on, these are, these are the expectations that they have. But when you look at those, let's just be honest, when you read those five verses, how many of you pull out Mary, pull out Bethlehem, pull out the virgin birth, pull out, you know, how many of you would just read that and go, I can see that being a lot of things. Anybody else? I can see that being a lot of things. And so this becomes one of those key verses that the Jewish rabbis, that the Jewish leadership become very interested in. And part of the big reason why I want to start with this one here is because they are looking for something deeply connected to David. So that 2 Samuel uh, verse, or chapter 7 really becomes the basis for this because of them looking for a kingdom and then a king of the line of David. Now let's go back and take a look at other, a couple other key verses that mean a lot uh, during this time period. I want you to turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 24. Which you would, here's what I would have liked. I would have loved if there was a Bible book called Messianic Expectations You Can Have, right? And then, you know, with like said, bulleted one, two, three, look for these things. The Bible doesn't come to us like that. I wish it did, but the Bible does not come to us like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why some people have problems and the rest of us have to dig real hard uh, and, and, and even depend upon, I love this, depend upon the Holy Spirit to help us understand how these things even fit together. And we're not the first ones to be seeking after this. But take a look at Numbers chapter uh, 24, verse 17. And again, this was a verse that they went to looking at it saying, okay, there's something here. There's something powerful that is going to be describing this kingdom, this Messiah, where he's going to come from. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, which kind of has a, kind of this, this powerful image, the star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. And this whole idea here of this scepter um, uh, coming from Jacob and coming from uh, kind of the, the tribes of Israel, this became one of the verses that they said, yeah, this is where we're going. So when you think about Christmas is coming up, I know too quickly for some of you, not fast enough for others. Remember the question that the Magi have? So wait, tell me about the Messiah. Where is he going to come from? Where is his king going to come from? They would have to go back and try to look at verses like this to try to deduce where they would be coming from. And this was a verse where there's a lot of stuff written by the rabbis regarding what these verses mean and where they're going to be coming from. Let me give you another one. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter, which again you see actually being in, used in numbers, and uh, by the way, one of the ways in which Jewish interpreters, Hillel the great uh, Jewish scholar back, uh, you know, before the time of Christ, would actually say as, as verses lined up using the same phrases, you could link them together and it kind of strengthened the case about what the Bible taught. So this was like a Jewish way of interpreting it. So you have that same Hebrew word. So the scepter shall not depart from Judah, and Judah would be um, one of the descent or one of the, the, the one of David's forefathers. Okay, so you have a you definitely have a, a connection there. A scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And they would look at that verse and say, okay, so from the tribe of Judah, from the from Jacob, and say, keep going down from Jacob, from Judah, from David, from Jesse. This is where all of this. And then they would hold on to that phrase or that idea that a scepter or a rod or rule would come. And that's what they're going back and they're looking for. This wonderful time where things are in control again. 
And without kind of going into all the particular details, although uh, Ryan and I were looking at a 27-page report, literally just looking at different rabbinic teachings and stuff, let me just kind of summarize it by this. Um, that messianic figures, okay, and, and here, let me here just help you. There's something I had to wrestle with. I think that I wanted the Jews to have a almost accurate understanding of what the Messiah would be in the first century. And the truth is they didn't. Um, they had a strong view of a king, some kind of leader. They had a strong view um, that there were going to be certain parts of the kingdom, that peace was going to come and that rule would be established, that their enemies would be defeated. But there wasn't this uniform picture of exactly how it was all going to work, which probably explains why there's always room for debate and disagreement and argument and disapproval in the times of Jesus Christ. It wasn't as simple as Jesus pulling out his birth certificate and showing it to everybody and them going, oh yeah, well, what can we do there? Look at that. Yep, Mary, Joseph. Yep, that's it. Yep, sorry, you're the Messiah. I mean, it's, it's, it's far deeper. It's far richer than that. And so here's, what, here's kind of the way I've kind of summarized it. The idea of the Messiah and what he would actually be like, it kind of ranges. Some of the rabbis would refer to him as a king. Others saw him more as a priest. Others saw him more as a prophet. What I think the book of Hebrews does beautifully is describes Jesus as what? King, priest, and prophet. So which one of those is he? And the answer is I kind of look back somewhat sermonically, but I think also exegetically, is that what Jesus of Nazareth, the real one who came, okay, not the one that they were wanting to come, but the real one who came was greater than they could have imagined was bigger than they could have fathomed, which I think sometimes what I love about the Bible is part of the, the, what we would consider to be the vagueness or the lack of succinct description is just the bigness of God's prophecy. It's just the bigness of who he is. Um, there's no language that can fully encapsulate exactly, exactly what is going to happen. And so it looks to us as though it's nuanced or vague or ambiguous, but in the end, it's just, it's just big. It's just profound, it's just deep, it's just rich. And so during that time period, and I, I would say between 200 BC, it's 400 years, 200 BC to 280, so it extends even after the time of Christ. They are longing for, and Ryan kind of set it up last week, um, because of the political turmoil, because of that they had a history of David doing well, and then Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, comes in, and he provides some relief. And they're going, we like this, and we don't like Rome. And you know what? The Bible seems to describe this, this peace and this fear of the Lord and, this, and they're going back and they're reading all of these texts and they're saying this must be what's going on. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. And then Christmas comes. So I want to spend a little bit of time um, hopefully enjoying some of these texts. I want to walk through here, and I want to just take a, take a, take a quick run, run through these verses. I think these will be helpful verses. There is a lot of debate. Um, I would argue much of it is foolish. But there's a big debate about Jesus' own self-understanding, which when you start talking like that, it usually means that someone's trying to write a PhD. Um, so the only, you know, you have to add to the body of knowledge in the world. And so uh, it became very uh, chic. And this, by the way, would be hundreds of years ago uh, to come along and to say, well, who did Jesus really understand himself to be? And they began to describe different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Um, he was more of a political revolutionary. That's who he was. Attacking Caesar, don't pay taxes. Like that's kind of who Jesus was. Well, you know what? No, he was actually more, some would actually write, kind of more of a magic man. Kind of working miracles. Now we don't believe in miracles because we're, we're modernists, okay? So I don't really believe in that, but he could do these kind of weird things, you know, card tricks and stuff. And so that's what they saw him as. And then others would say, no, he's more of a prophet. All... I think, I don't believe he was a magic man. He did work miracles, but I believe they're true. But all of these, again, looking at the bigness of who Jesus Christ is, 
Um, most books, even great books by like Albert Schweitzer, where they're trying to understand who Jesus Christ is, the, the, the deepest concern that I have is that he could almost never be this. And even if he is this, it's not within the divine category. Okay? This could still all be earthly, right? Like a king. But Jesus comes along and says, hey, not only am I that, but the bigger context of who I am is I am in fact God. Okay, so what is, how does Jesus understand himself? And so there's a lot of descriptions, or a lot of, I guess, debate as to whether or not Jesus understood himself as the Messiah. Now, for the sake of honesty, I just I want to help you understand, for those of you that um, enjoy, and I do, I do, thoroughly enjoy the History Channel, Discovery Channel, okay, which they don't just have good Bible-believing programs, okay? They've got, uh, they've got, they're doing better, actually, in bringing on some, some great scholars. I'm seeing Al Mohler um, a lot more. I just absolutely love his scholarship. Um, but they're, to just take a guy from Harvard or Yale uh, or Notre Dame or whatever is, is mostly liberal theologians is not a good description of Orthodox Christianity, okay? Now, I need you to understand this because this can be confusing to the average person, okay, who doesn't recognize this distinction. When I say, what did Jesus say about himself? Most scholars would say this on the liberal side. They would say, well, we don't know what Jesus would say about himself. Now, if I were to say to you, what does Jesus say about himself? You would go where to find out what Jesus said? You'd go where? The Bible. Well, duh, the Bible. The Bible has recorded in it the words of Jesus. Just hold on, are you ready? Maybe, or maybe not. So let's just, let's get down to the details here because it really helps us understand it. Do we actually have the words of Jesus or do we have the words of Jesus' followers what they said that Jesus said? What do we really have? And the truth is, okay, we have actually the testimony of the followers of Jesus, don't we? Jesus didn't write anything. Matthew said that Jesus said. John said that Jesus said. Mark said that Jesus said. Paul said that Jesus said. But in terms of what we know that Jesus said, you can understand where they're coming from at least. I'm not asking you to agree with them, but they're going, what we really have in the Bible is the early Christian testimony. And by the way, liberal scholarship says this does not equal that. Okay, so when you hear them talking like that, that's why. They say these guys have manipulated these guys. By the way, Muslims say the same thing. When I talk to my buddy Taysir, he believes that our Bible is not an accurate representation of what really happened. Okay, he's just wrong. Respectfully, he's just wrong. I believe that it actually is true. So how we would really understand it is we do have this. So I, I say yes, we have that. I would argue this is an accurate depiction of this. Does that make sense? By the way, that's what a Christian believes. So, but I want you to understand where they're coming from. When they, where they're saying, hey, we don't know what Jesus would say, it's not that they don't believe the Bible. They don't believe the Bible accurately records what history said. They believe it's biased. But by the way, most of us, when we read stuff today, how many of you read stuff today and go, ah, oh, they're biased? Anybody read stuff today and go, they're biased? Okay, so you at least understand where they're coming from. Okay, this is why everything comes back to our understanding of the Bible and what do you believe it to be? And I believe the Bible to be the authoritative word of God, okay? So let's look at these texts. So now you understand why I say that when Jesus claims these things, Jesus claimed them and his earliest followers wrote them down. So I want you to just, did Jesus know that he was the Messiah is the question in point, and I want to try to prove to you over the next few moments that the answer to that question is yes. First one I want to look at, Luke chapter 4, verse 41. Jesus is having a conversation with a demon, um, and it's interesting that the demons know who he is. Luke chapter 4, verse 41. I tried to put these as best as I could in chronological order. So Jesus' conversation with a demon, verse 41 and demons also came out, uh, came out, many crying, you are the son of God. 
but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, which would be another point, another conversation. Why wouldn't Jesus let these demons confess who he was? That's another conversation, okay? But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ, that they knew he was the what? The Messiah. The demons knew who he was and therefore he said, no, be quiet. I don't want you to talk. So he didn't say, I'm not the Messiah. You're mistaken, demon. He says, no, I am the Messiah. That is true. And I want you to be quiet. Let's look at another great verse. John chapter four, verse 25. This is the, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, Jacob's well. And in verse 25 of John chapter four, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. So John kind of gives that explanation there. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And by the time the conversation is over, what does Jesus say? I am who you speak about. I am the Messiah. So Jesus understood himself to be the fulfillment. Next one, John chapter 10, which is, this is one of my favorite sections in all of the Bible. In John chapter 10, for those that are dealing with, did Jesus understand himself to be what the Jewish people were expecting? Not only that, but this is a great text for Jesus' belief that he was divine. Okay, because I, I, could, I could at least work with you along the way that Jesus could have considered himself to be the Messiah, but then it could have just been like a, a king like David. He's more than just David, okay? He's, he's bigger than that. But here's how, you, uh, how they see that, uh, that encounter that Jesus is having with the, with the religious leaders. Verse 22 of John chapter 10. At that time of the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. Jesus was walking into the temple uh, in the colonnade of Solomon. By the way, I tell you, we're gonna be there next May. That's gonna be incredible. I love being in that area. Anyway, so the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? Which, here is the problem. I've recently gone through the Gospel of John with a couple I'm sharing the Gospel with right now. And this is such a joke that they're saying, tell us. Because if you were reading in chapter four, Jesus is telling them. In chapter five, Jesus is telling them. In chapter six, Jesus is telling them. In chapter seven, Jesus is telling them. In chapter eight, Jesus is telling them. In chapter nine, Jesus is telling them. And now they're going, will you just tell us? Like it literally is like, are you serious? You're not, you did not just say that to Jesus. The Jews gathered around, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, which is, by the way, by the time they're done, they're ready to kill him. So it's not like they're confused. Modern scholarship might be confused about what Jesus was meaning, but they were not. They knew to kill him. And they, for what of these are you gonna kill me? No, 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 we wanna kill you because you, although a mere man, claim to be God. But they ask him, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly, Jesus' answer is what? I have told you, I've told you, I've told you. You do not understand. You do not listen. So Jesus is clear. Let's go down and uh, read this next one. Matthew chapter 16, you know this one. Um, kind of very strong within the Jewish expecta expectations. Uh, this is the great confession that Peter gives. So verse 13 of Matthew 16. So now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, uh, by the way, we'll be there in May next year, right where this actually took place. It's gonna be really kind of awesome. Uh, big, huge rock uh, on the, okay, anyway. Uh, district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, these are prophets, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell, better translation, gates of death, will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Again, you might go, why is he not wanting people to know? We can have that conversation. In part, though, let me just kind of prepare you for this, that just because Jesus says he was the Messiah, just because he did miracles, um, just because all of things are happening, there are still people who will look Jesus in the face and say, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. So just to prepare you when you're having conversations with people and you clearly present who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as their propitiating sacrifice, meaning that he can take away the wrath of God from them. And they will look at you and they will say, I'm not interested. I don't care. Blows my mind. But they will say that. And I I love to be reminded that to, to help people see Go back to John 10. To help people see the truth that Jesus was the expected Messiah is not a skillful debater's, it's not under a skillful debater's control. It's just not. John makes it very clear as he's writing in John 10. Jesus makes it clear. He says what? These things are revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. And it has really changed my evangelistic strategy to not just be able to be prepared to explain who Jesus is from the scriptures, but to pray and to beg the Lord to do a work that my skills of arguing does nothing. So uh, as we continue on, I want you to see a few more here. Uh, John, or sorry, Mark, we're still in Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, then how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Quoting a psalm here, I like this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now notice, David is the one who's speaking and David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So God said to my Lord. Well, if you're King David, who is your Lord? Who is God talking to? And David is pointing out what? Notice this. If then David calls him Lord, meaning the Messiah, which was what they all believed about that text, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Jesus goes back to the scriptures and says, hey, you all believe that this is talking about the Messiah? We all know that the Messiah is actually David's son, so tell me why David calls him Lord crickets. One other one which I think is really helpful for us to see is in Matthew chapter 26. So now we're in the thick of it, right? We're in absolutely in the thick of the, 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 uh, the kind of the argumentation during the trial of Jesus Christ. So Jesus being interrogated, he remains silent, verse 63, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, which is some of that imagery that we actually see from their own teachings regarding the Messiah. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. To which point they say, they start ripping off their robes. We've heard enough. He claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be God. And therefore we need to kill him. And I love to point out, Modern scholarship may not understand what Jesus was getting at, but his original audience, both the disciples understood it and his enemies understood it. They understood what Jesus was actually claiming. So, um, I wish I could spend more time here, but I'm gonna kind of cut it a little bit shorter. Um, I want you to actually see that the testimony of the early church then continues what was actually happening with Jesus which is the use of the scriptures, the use of the Old Testament um, to go back and to say, 
is Jesus of Nazareth that we read about in, in Matthew and in Luke in terms of his birth, is he, and then his ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is he the one that is promised in here? Okay? Imagine if I were to say to you, I've got this friend who doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Will you just use the pages of the Old Testament to prove it? Have you ever had to try to do that? You ever, you know, we'll turn to, I mean, even like Isaiah 11. Wow, I mean, it's tough to, to go back there and do that. But that is literally what they did. I want you to, I want to, I want to show you some of these. Look at Luke chapter 24, and there's a couple of verses I want to read to you from Luke 24. The first one is found in Luke 24, 27. You guys know the story of the road to Emmaus, right? Where he's walking with these two disciples, and he hides his, his appearance somehow. He, they don't know who he is. So Jesus and these two are walking and talking and they have no idea. And, and they're literally, Jesus says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Well, don't you know what's going on? Jesus, no, I don't know what's going on. Tell me what's going on. They begin to tell Jesus about his crucifixion and resurrection. And they have no idea. And then, I love this. And then Jesus, I, I, I heard a sermon actually about a year and a half ago that really blew my mind because I don't think I'd ever thought about this. If you were Jesus and you came back from the dead, would you not just go, ta-da! Look at me, like look at me, like notice who I am. Put your hand here, put your fingers here, like look at who I am. I mean, would you not just watch? I can grow as big as a tree. Ah! You know, you could do all these things and to prove that you were Jesus, but you know what Jesus did? Jesus said, let me, let me show you, and this is profound. Let me show you not just another way, but maybe the best way to know who I am. And in verse 27, I think this is what we don't understand or appreciate. And I want to just, I'm not, you don't have to go there, but in, in John 5, Jesus says this to the Jewish leaders. Moses wrote about me. And if you really believed Moses, I know you want to say you believe Moses, but if you really believed Moses, you would believe me too. Because Moses, if he were here right now, would bow down to me. That's what Jesus says. That's profound. And so what does he do in verse 27? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. We don't need the ta-da. I mean, when you're, you just, Jesus says an evil and adulterous generations look for signs. And I, I don't know about you, but I can be guilty of going, I just want a sign. You know, I mean, I think I've told you the time I'm watching, I'm literally watching David Letterman and Michael J. Fox, and maybe it's because he's Canadian, I don't know, but I'm watching the show and I'm literally praying for Michael J. Fox to be healed when I'm watching the show. I'm told, I've used this illustration before. I'm literally going, God, I just want you to heal him right now. And I won't even tell anybody else that, that I was the one that prayed and that you did this. And I'm wanting to see this miracle. I'm wanting to see this miracle. This is what I do at late night. I'm wanting to see this miracle and I'm just wanting to know. And, and he has given me more than enough in his word. He's given me more than enough in Genesis 49, 10. More than enough in Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through five. So as much as miracles are, wow, like Jesus reveals more than enough in himself through the scriptures. In chapter 24, continuing on to all the disciples, verse 44, he says this. And then he said to them, these are speaking to the disciples. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins shall be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then the book of Acts begins and I, I wish you've got the verses to go back and take a look at, but what the early Christians did was they went over and over and over and over these biblical truths about who Jesus Christ was. This is who he is. And they didn't just describe this earthly kingdom, and this is what they, the, the Jewish people needed to realize, is that they needed to submit to the picture of Jesus Christ that he would in fact suffer. They had a one-dimensional view of Jesus. Okay, And he had to fit into, as I'm about to conclude here, he has to fit into these rabbinical teachings. 
And it's always dangerous to make God fit instead of letting God reign and rule in terms of his kingdom. And so there were lots of things that they said, yeah, the Messiah is not gonna do that. I mean, it's right after, by the way, Peter gets into that beautiful statement, you are the Christ, the son of the living, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, wow, great job, Peter. You just said this, God, God revealed this to you. And then he said, and by the way, the Messiah will suffer. And what did Peter say right after that? Never. And so right from going, you are the Messiah, and Jesus says, God has revealed this, almost the next words out of Jesus' mouth are what? Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Why? Because when we take the Messiah and make him serve us, make him serve our understanding or our purposes. I read something the other day. I want to say it was an Al Mohler quote. Somebody quoted it. It was this, that if you are serving Jesus so that you can get what you want out of life, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. We don't serve Jesus so we can get what we want. We serve Jesus because he is the Messiah. So let me give you this as we, as we close, actually. This is fascinating. Some of you might go, this isn't really kind of fitting in my head. And uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed actually developing some uh, Jewish friends over the last few years. Um, and I love to ask them questions because here was my mindset coming into this was that they would look at these Bible verses about Jesus, hello, born of a virgin. If that doesn't say Messiah, what does? Hello, Jesus, son of God. If that doesn't say Messiah, then what is? Hello, Jesus. And I had all these things that in my mind were proving that they are, that he is the Messiah. And what I found interesting, these are, and this is not just one particular framework. This is modern Jewish apologetics as to why they should not follow Jesus. And as I read them, you're gonna go, okay, wow. This kind of undercuts how I would even witness to a Jew. Number one. Jesus did not fulfill the messianic prophecies. So you begin with this. When the Messiah comes, first thing he's gonna do, according to Ezekiel 37, is he's going to build a temple. And did Jesus build a temple? No, okay? So that's one thing Jesus didn't do. Number two, Isaiah 43 describes all these things, all the Jews coming back. As I described, they went out to Babylon, they went down to Egypt. They all need to come back and be a part of the land. So gathering all Jews, for those of us, how many of you have been to Israel? By the way, did I tell you we're going next May? Yeah. So you've been to Israel, but one thing that, one thing that the guides love to say to you is they'll, you'll see like some children, if you are of Jewish descent, you are, a, you are like the government pays you to go over there to have an experience. They, they want you to go over there. They love that. Want you to go over there. We gotta come over. You gotta come over here. You gotta come see the land. You gotta come see the land. And so this idea of all being gathered back is a big deal. And what the Messiah is going to do is to gather all the Jews back into the land. Did Jesus do that? Answer, no. Third one, he will bring world peace from not just Isaiah 2, but also from Zechariah and other parts of Isaiah, that there will be this global peace. So now think about this. this is, if this is part of the not just modern understanding, but I would say part of it would be, uh, would be existing within the first century as well. Um, did Jesus bring peace to the world? And funny, well, I would argue, yes. Don't you understand we have peace with God? No, that's not what we're looking for. It's not what we're arguing about. It's world peace. And then the fourth thing that they believe the Messiah will do is spread universal knowledge of the God of Israel so that everyone will know that Yahweh is the God of Israel and the God of the world. And did Jesus do that? And they say, no, therefore Jesus is not the Messiah. Number two, Jesus did not embody the personal qualifications of Messiah. Number one, he was not a prophet. Now here's where it gets interesting. So you can understand their framework. Again, this is more of a modern day framework than we can go back and see it being written by the rabbis. But the rabbis through the last 2000 years have saying the only time a prophet can actually be speaking to Israel is when the majority of Jews in the world are living in Israel. Okay, so that's the, that's the premise. That stops at the time of Malachi. So step one, the majority of Jews in the world need to be in Israel. Once that happens, then prophets can begin to speak, which is driving a lot of this, we need to come back to Israel, okay? 
within certain groups within Judaism. Is he a descendant of David? Now, what's interesting is we would argue what? Yes. But they say, well, who is his father? And we would say who? God. Which is interesting. Any divinity undercuts modern understandings of Messiah. So when we say Jesus was born of a virgin, meaning that Joseph was not his real father, then oh, well, they, literally in some of the stuff I was reading, they're like, fine, we'll even give that to you. And if that is true, that Jesus was born of a virgin, and therefore we don't know who his father is, then obviously he's not the Messiah. Okay? Wow, that went kind of really... Because I, I have to preach that he was born of a virgin, right? Like that's what we believe. And it really undercuts some of this. And then the other one that they make a big deal out of is that do, does he observe all the Torah? And Jesus comes along in Matthew 5 and actually says, I'm not come here to abolish but to fulfill it. And so a lot of the teachings that are true that Jesus did, that the early writers, Jesus broke the Sabbath, Jesus broke so then why would you, and by the way, they have all these fascinating scriptures. Um, uh, one, of the, one, of the, one, of the, one of the fascinating things that they want to go along and say, listen, this is how we know Jesus was not the Messiah, is that the book of Deuteronomy says that even if someone comes along and does miracles, but does not follow Torah, then he is a false prophet. Which, by the way, is in Deuteronomy. That you can have people that can deceive you with miraculous type things. And if they do not follow the words of God, then they are a false prophet. And then they, they use Deuteronomy to prove that Jesus Christ, who did not follow Torah, is obviously then not the Messiah. So you've got to be able to discuss that one. Which then, yeah, they, we'll, we'll talk more about this as things go on. They also, by the way, believe that we as Christians have mistranslated certain verses that are referring to Jesus. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Um, Psalm 22, which is the great depiction of Jesus dying on the cross. Behold, they have pierced my hands and my feet. What's interesting though, I'll give you the other side of this. There is evidence, and this would be shocking within the Jewish community. There is actually evidence through the centuries of Psalm 22 actually being altered like changed by uh, Jewish scribes because of how accurate it depicts the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which is amazing that they would actually do that. But they would say these are mistranslations. What do they do, particularly with Isaiah 53, is they consider this story of the suffering servant of God to be Israel itself. So they take a lot of the Messiah language, and again, it's hard to talk about all of Jewish teaching, um, but large sections of Jewish, Jewish teaching now look back at some of these texts that would describe a suffering servant, and they would say that's actually just depicting not a Messiah figure, but in fact, the nation of Israel itself. And then lastly, this is kind of an interesting one, um, Jewish belief is based solely on national revelation. And here's what they mean by that is that there is not a chance that when the Messiah comes, the Jews will miss him. Like that doesn't even make sense. There's no way that if God sends the Messiah that the nation of Israel would miss their Messiah. How would that even happen? Why would God send the Messiah and the Jews who they sent the Messiah for and the kingdom that he's going to establish how could they even miss it? And so when I've had some conversations with some Jewish people, the fact that Jesus was rejected and crucified is in fact proof that he could not have been the Messiah. And by the way, hear me. Do you hear their logic? I, I hear it. Well, that, that is pretty amazing, actually. What I love, though, to be honest with you, is I love that Paul explains that. What? This is Stephen in Acts 7. By the way, Stephen answers that question. They're getting ready to kill Stephen. What does Stephen say? Listen, you guys kill everybody that God sends. He doesn't go, yeah, you're right. You, you usually get, he's like, no, no. Has there been a prophet you guys haven't, that's Stephen's argument, isn't it? Tell me one prophet you guys haven't killed. 
So, by the way, there are some answers to these kinds of questions. But when I began to read through this, I thought, wow, this is, this is far more profound than I thought. And it really has taught me to want to go back and to look at some of these Old Testament texts so that next time I'm in Israel, especially it's next May, I don't know if I've told you that, it's next May through next May 28th through June 8th or 9th, um, is that I want to be able to use some of these Old Testament texts and some very honest conversations to prove from the scriptures that Jesus was in fact the Messiah that God promised, the Messiah that the Jews expected, and the Messiah that came to rescue his people from their sins. Those are Jewish expectations. When we come back next week, we are going to be talking about the kingdom of God and how Jesus describes the, the officially what we're going to describe as the manifesto of that, which is the Sermon on the Mount. So let me pray. We're done. God bless. God, I thank you for this time and for Jesus. Father, for the things that he has said and the things that he has done, for his kindness. Uh, Father, for um, the truth about him and the, the, the revelation that you've given to us about him. May we not take for granted, may we never believe that we have somehow come to faith because we're smarter or we're better. The truth is, Father, um, it is by your grace that we believe. And so I thank you for that. And I pray that with um, earnestness, that we would share these truths about what we believe, not just about a generic God, but the real God of the universe, Yahweh is your name, and your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, may we be faithful to him and to you. And may we make much of him and therefore make much of you. We ask you for your strength and your wisdom and your courage as we live out this in a culture that doesn't want to hear it. Yeshua's name. Amen.